This is Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. For my covenant of peace be removed, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, we ask again that you would help us. Um, your word is truth. Your word is life. And boy, do we need to hear you speak to us right now. And so we ask for your help in every way. 
that you would help me uh, to speak clearly and faithfully to your word, that you would help us to hear it, and then as you speak, that your very words would give life and would make us more and more the people you call us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning, uh, as I've kind of already implied, I want to focus on the idea of joy. And what I want uh, us to consider is that one of the great privileges of following Christ is that we have the privilege of living a life of joy. In fact, it's, it's more than even just a privilege. Uh, our calling as followers of Christ is to be those who live lives of joy. Now, I realize that me focusing on that might feel a little tone deaf to us right now. Uh, we have just heard that we have no more school. Well, we have school. It's just we don't get to see each other in school. My niece said that in this situation, it's like we've taken all the good stuff out of school and just left the bad stuff. And, and you add to that, we're hearing of thousands of deaths, millions of people filing for unemployment. And it's just rough. And it seems such a strange thing to speak of having a life of joy in circumstances like this. And yet, um, I want us to consider the fact that it was exactly in circumstances like this that our passage, which is what calls us to joy, was spoken to. So, uh, if you don't have that passage before, you invite you to, because we will just be working through Isaiah 54. And I just want us to notice from the very outset how God speaks to his people. He speaks to his people and he calls them, O barren woman. That is someone who is infertile. We'll find out even later she is a widow. She has no hope of having children. Um, if you have ever struggled yourself with infertility, uh, in a marriage, or you know others who have, you you know just how extraordinarily painful that can be. Um, and that was the way it was in, in the day of when God is speaking. And in fact, it was compounded with the fact that to have a large family was considered honorable. And so to be unable to have children was a source of shame. And then you add to the fact that in that day, people didn't have 401ks or social security. So children was your retirement plan. They were the ones who were going to take care of you when you could no longer take care of yourself. And so to be barren, childless, a widow was not just sad, it was also shameful and it was hopeless. And God calls his people that because that is the situation he is speaking to. They are, as you might remember, in exile, removed from their lands, their army has been destroyed, and they are miserable. They have lost their traditions of being able to gather in the temple. They have lost their homes. And in addition to that, they are feeling hopeless. Like, what do you do if you have no more army and you are under the captivity of a mighty army? What hope is there in that? And they are filled with shame because it is their fault that has brought this about. And yet God says, oh, barren woman. Live with joy. That's, that's the, 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 the commands that we see in the coming verses, right? Uh, it says, 
you know, sing, barren woman, burst into song, shout for joy. They're supposed to have this joy. And not only that, but living joyfully, you know, acting with hope and joy. Verse two speaks of enlarge your tent. It's the idea of like, expand your house, add an addition with a nursery because you're about to have kids. And, and, and even this, this joy is supposed to go so deep that it dispels fear. You know, fear not is what it says in, in the following verses. Now, now, why would God say that to a, a woman who is hopeless? Remember, God is speaking to exilic Israel, where their situation all around them is miserable. And the reason is because this is chapter 54 of Isaiah. And, and that means it comes after Isaiah 53. Do you remember? Isaiah 53 is the climax of the book. It is where God says, this is how I'm going to save my people. I will send a servant and he will become like them and he will be faithful and he will go down into the very depths of their suffering and guilt and take their punishment for them and remove their sin and bring them up from it and rescue them. We have in Isaiah 53 a, a prophecy of both Christ's death and his resurrection. And so in chapter 54, we have, therefore, because this is what has happened, rejoice. Even though right now things look miserable, I want you to know that everything has changed. And your childlessness will be changed to childfulness and there will be joy. Therefore, even though you don't experience it right now, because it is happening, rejoice, live with joy. And this actually is what we see again and again in the Bible of what it looks like to live in the light of the resurrection. It is to live a life with joy. We, we noticed this in the call to worship at the very beginning of the service, right? Peter is writing to a church that's being persecuted, and he says, and now you rejoice. He even uses the words with inexpressible joy. Um, Paul comes to this theme again and again. Do you remember? Uh, if we, we studied Galatians a few years ago, and in Galatians, there's this one part where it's talking about how we should live seeking to follow the leading of the Spirit. And Paul says, and here's what it looks like. He speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, the signs that the Spirit is at work in you. And the first one we might expect, it is love. But you know, the second sign of the Spirit's work in you is joy. In uh, his letter to the Romans, when he's addressing a church that is getting in an argument about food laws, he, he says, to give them kind of clarity, to orient them, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The life of the follower of Christ is a life involving joy. And then perhaps even most clearly when he is writing to the Philippian church, a church where he himself is in prison and the Philippians are experiencing persecution. And he says very clearly this command, rejoice in the Lord. And in case they miss it, he comes back to it another chapter later and he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it in case you missed it, rejoice. To hear that, that in light of the resurrection, our privilege as followers of Christ, in fact, not just our privilege, but our calling, is to live lives of joy, which is really awesome 
if you think about it. I mean, sometimes Christianity is portrayed as this really solemn, serious, eat your vegetables and do the right thing kind of thing. Or it sometimes can be seen as this overly careful, make sure that you're not making any mistakes, make sure you're living just the right way. And, and it misses this, that, that the life of following Christ is a life where God intends for us to be filled with joy. Now, even as I say that, I realize it is easy to, to have maybe misconceptions of what we even mean by that. So let me just kind of say, to try to help us to understand that, three, three biblical truths about how we should think of joy. First one to understand is that true Christian joy is honest. I think sometimes um, when we... When we think of joy, we have kind of the wrong idea in our minds. Um, some of us in our family like to watch the comedy Superstore. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this one guy who's actually kind of a likable guy, Glenn, who's clearly an evangelical Christian. And it seems like he believes that in every way he should be happy. And so the way he handles that is he just chooses not to look at any of the bad things in life. He is just going to have a smile on his face the whole time. And and that's not healthy. And we know that's not healthy in the and if that's what joy is, we don't want it. But, but that isn't what joy is. Um, a, a, a perhaps more refined version of that is I think some people in seeking joy have just decided the way to joy is just to accept. That is, when suffering comes, we're honest, we see it, but we just try to learn to be okay with it. And, and just to be able to say, no matter what happens, it's all good. And, and let me say, that actually isn't what Christian joy is about either. That actually is is more the, the sense of Buddhism. Buddhism is the idea that wholeness comes by ceasing to want anything and just accepting what happens. But that's actually not the Christian understanding of how we should be. You know, the, the Christian Bible has repeated cries in the Psalms and even in Revelation. How long, O Lord? I mean, Jesus himself weeps in the face of death. So... So that's not how we should understand what joy is, because joy is honest. Joy looks at the hard things of this life, and it is willing to experience grief, and yet there still can be joy. So the Apostle Paul himself says in the midst of some of his trials, he says he is sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Do you hear that? They, they can come side by side because true joy is not a fragile thing where a little bit of sadness or even a lot of sadness can kind of like make it go away and break it. No, true joy is so deep and so real that it can exist even if, even when there is great suffering. So the first thing to understand is the joy the Bible speaks of is honest. And yet at the same time, I want to say that according to scripture, the joy that we are called to is a joy that actually involves happiness. Now, I say that because I think it's a common distinction that people will make. I hear this oftentimes with preaching to say that there's a difference between joy and happiness. And the reason that people will say that is for a good reason. It is exactly for what we just said. They want to say, you don't always have to have a smile on your face and just pretend everything is great. And that's true. But yet, I think we should recognize the Bible doesn't make that distinction between joy and happiness. 
And I think there's actually even a danger that if we make that distinction too strong, we can start thinking that when the Bible speaks of joy, it really doesn't involve the emotions. That, that joy, unlike happiness, is just kind of a, an inner zen of just, well, I'm feeling deep joy. Which again, really is more Buddhism than, than Christianity. I mean, just think about what our passage calls people to, to, to shout for joy, to, to sing. And it's not just here. We see that again and again in the Psalms. Shout for joy, sing, make music in your heart. We have them in the New Testament as well. Now, does that sound just like, like an, an emotionless well-being? I mean, if, if I, the first time we all get together as a church and I come in and I am going, yes, and I am like singing. If people say, hey, you are really happy. If I said, no, it's not happiness, it's just joy. No one would believe it because obviously that's emotional. When you sing and when you shout, that, well, that's, that's happiness. And, and my point is, is that when the Bible speaks of joy, it envisions that there are times that that joy will well up in an experience of happiness. Now, it's going to be different for different people. We, we all experience things differently. Some of us kind of have gotten the genetic lottery and we're just naturally cheerful and it's easier for us to actually feel the reality of joy and others of us it it's like we're always a bit in a fog and it's harder but it doesn't change the fact that when god is saying he is inviting us into joy and he's calling us into joy he is speaking of something that has a lot of overlap with happiness that god actually desires our happiness. I've heard it say that God doesn't want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. That's wrong. He wants both. So that's the second one, that, that joy actually has a lot in common with happiness. And then finally, joy is something that we fight for. Um, we already, I think, have recognized that it's not just something that you can flick a switch and just be joyful and put a smile and turn the frown upside down. That's, that's not the way joy works. It's not just this will. And yet, I mean, it is commanded, right? We've, we've seen that command on a few times already. And, and that command implies that there is a choice that we can make about this. There is a way that we can actually pursue the joy that God has for us. And in fact, Paul, really interestingly, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says that his, it's 2 Corinthians, that his job is to work with you for your joy. Which I love that as a job description. And, and what that says is there's a way that we can kind of collaborate. In some ways, that, that I think is how I should be thinking of my job, and hopefully you as yours, so that, that we are working together pursuing this joy that is meant for us. And so if that is our calling, if, if it's not just a privilege, but it's our calling, and he's actually inviting us to pursue joy, that's what I would like us to be considering for the next few weeks in this season of Eastertide. And, and I want to ask us, and truly I'm saying us, because I very much feel like I'm a part of this, of feeling this sense of needing to fight, fight for joy. How, how do we do this? What does it look like for us to pursue joy? 
And here's where it begins. I think this is where our passage takes us for the rest of the passage. It begins with us grasping the reality at an experiential level that you and I are loved by God. So in our passage, um, right along with those commands, sing, O barren woman, make your tents larger, do not be afraid. After saying things are going to turn around, he, he anchors it in this final statement. And here's essentially what the final statement is. I am going to make you my bride. So verse 5, it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Now that word is really important. Do you remember the story of Ruth that we looked at last year? Ruth is like this. She is a childless widow who it seems like is Hopeless, And yet in the biblical law of the Old Testament, there was this provision that a relative could take the widow and make her his own. They would get married. And so suddenly that person who was hopeless would suddenly have hope and potentially an heir. And that's what Boaz does. Boaz takes Ruth and loves her and makes her his wife. And she enters into this happily ever after story. And God says, that's me. I am your Boaz. I am your redeemer. You are hopeless and you're alone. And yet I love you and I will make you my wife. Have you ever wondered why the very first miracle that Jesus ever does is at a wedding where he turns the water of cleansing into the wine of celebration? It's because he is signaling with that miracle, what he came to do, he came to take his bride to himself. Ephesians 5 tells us that the church, us, we are the bride of Christ. And Jesus laid down his life to purify us, to, to remove any obstacle to him being able to marry us. And then in Revelation, when all is done and Christ returns, there is this great picture of this wedding celebration. And there's even this song that is sung, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Do you hear that? A call to rejoice. Why? Because our God wants us. The one who made us, the one who is in charge, wants us as his bride. You know, from the moment that you and I are born, we have this question burning in our hearts before we can even speak it. Do I belong? Do I fit into this world? Am I loved? Am I wanted? This is one of the reasons why we try to prove ourselves, to make a place for this, ourselves in this world. This is one of the reasons why when we first experience loving someone else, falling in love with them, and then we know that they love us back, we feel awesome because our souls are being told, yes, you have a place. Yes, you fit. And what, what we are being told here is that 
the God who made you, the God who rules over everything, he wants you. Not just wanting us so that we can do things for him. That's the confusion that we have. God doesn't need us to do anything. He can do everything. He, he wants you and me because he delights in us. Because he simply loves us. Now, I want to just acknowledge right now, I feel like I am just beginning emotionally to be able to, to latch on to what that means. Maybe you feel the same way, but more and more I'm convinced that this is the key. Like this is the key that will can unlock a door for us being able to experience that joy. The reality that the God of the universe smiles on us and wants us as his bride. And he is absolutely, completely committed to us. That's actually where the, the, the next part of the passage goes. God explains or, or declares his commitment. Right now, or before the servant came, there was a rupture in relationship. This is what we've been looking at in Isaiah, where God's people repeatedly turned from God, was cheating on God, and it led to a break in the relationship. And now God's people are alone. They feel like God is far away. And yet God says, now, now things have changed. Now, though I once hid my face from you, and though once you experienced my anger, I am taking you back. I am filled with compassion. I now love you, and it is never going to change. And though it doesn't explicitly say that the reason for this is because of what just happened, because God had sent his son, the servant, to deal and to remove all of the sin and the guilt, and now there is nothing that stands in the way between God and his people, and there is nothing that will budge in any way this relationship. That, that's the point of the next verses when he speaks of, of, of the firmness of his commitment. And, and in fact, he, he speaks of, you know, he says, I have sworn. He, he speaks of a mountain. He said, you know, look at the mountain over there. You, you see how massive mountains are. These have been here for a million years. Can you imagine these mountains tottering? just being you know, shaken so they start moving. And can you imagine a mountain just kind of going away? Even if you can imagine that, even if that could somehow happen, even still my commitment for you cannot be shaken and it cannot be moved. There is nothing more certain than my commitment to you. It will not change, which is huge. Because right now, we're, we are reeling. We are reeling because of how everything we counted on seems to have fallen apart. I was seeing this you know, kind of humorous three-minute clip uh, this week where um, the April version of a person was able to go back in time to talk with the January version of the person. And what was funny was just how impossible it was for the person in January to understand what the person in April was saying. I mean, just think about how we were in January. Can you imagine in January us even thinking that all the sports would be closed and that March Madness would be canceled? That our kids would not be at school for all of April and May? 
that that there wouldn't be graduation ceremonies that that the things like equipment for the hospital would suddenly be in doubt and and that we wouldn't even necessarily know where we could get toilet paper i mean everything that we've just taken for granted is gone in some ways we can't count on anything it seems except for one thing and that what we can count on is the commitment of god coronavirus won't change that even if this world would turn upside down God's commitment to you, if you are in Christ, his commitment to love you is absolutely unshakable. And that is everything. And that, and that means everything in terms of our hope and our happiness. That's, that's where he takes it in the, the final verses of our passage. He, he speaks... Before, we said he spoke to Israel as this barren woman, this childless woman. Well, in verse 11, he, he speaks of her as an afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. That's how God's people are. But he says, that's not how you will be. I'm going to take you and I'm going to rebuild you. And I'm going to make you beautiful. Your, your walls will be covered with gems. You, the things that you're afraid of, it says terror will be far removed from you. You won't have anything to be afraid of. And he says, our relationship in this will be so close, so harmonious, that when you send your kids off to school, I mean, that'd be great to know itself, sending your kids off. When you send, you know who their teacher is going to be? I am going to be their teacher. They will be taught by me. Now, as in poetry, again and again, this is not meant to be taken literally, that we should imagine the world to come, that we will have these gates with gems. More what God is saying is, I want to give you a picture so that you can understand that I, I actually understand your desires. I understand the things that you ache for, and they matter to me. And I want you to know that when all is said and done, every single one of your desires will be fulfilled and you will be happy that is what he is promising and he's saying this is so certain because everything i say is so certain because my commitment is so ironclad because my love for you is so deep that even now where everything around you looks miserable, even now you can begin to rejoice because you know that that future is real. And this is why. This is why we actually have both the privilege and the calling to be joyful. Because our suffering right now is great. That is true. It, it doesn't help us to, to diminish it. Some of us more than others. Some of us are maybe going to experience it more in the future. But right now in this world, the suffering is great. And yet the joy that is before us is even greater. And what we're experiencing right now is temporary. But the joy that is before us is eternal. And so God calls us to pursue joy, to work, to hold on to that joy, to fight for joy, 
Now we should recognize that even as he calls us to do that, he himself is the one who first and foremost has fought for our joy. Jesus, when he came into this world, he prayed before going to the cross. He prayed that we might be filled with joy. And when he laid down his life and rose again, it was to give us joy. He is the champion who has fought for our joy and he invites us to join him. And that's what I want to invite us to do, to have a kind of defiant joy together, not one that is dishonest, one that is honest and that can lament and can cry. But as we have tears in our eyes, it is one that can say, this isn't the whole story. One that as we look and see the suffering of this world and grieve, yet at the same time, we are able to look beyond that and see the bigger reality that is richer and greater. It is to choose to be defined by the reality that you and I are those that God wants, that he loves, that he is committed to, and that he will work tirelessly for until we experience the fullness of joy that he wants for us. I want to ask you and me together as a sign to the world, as a sign to each other, to fight for that joy together. And, and we will be thinking about how to do that in the coming weeks. But for right now, the way we start is through praying. And so I'd like to...